Welcome everyone to another episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. Thank you all for clicking on today's episode. If you got here from the mailing list, special thank you to you. We're trying to make sure that we get everyone signed up for our mailing list because as you guys know, when we lost our Instagram, we lost connection with 200 plus of you and we don't want that to happen again. So make sure you go to www.thepreventivemedicinepodcast.com and sign up for the mailing list. And now let's get into the show. Overcoming saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths, we must now face a new enemy, ourselves. With the rates of diseases such as heart disease, stroke, diabetes, depression, and many others ballooning, we must find a better solution to these modern epidemics. Welcome to the Preventive Medicine Podcast. We believe in building a foundation of health by means of prevention so that you can build the life you want and find fulfillment with no barriers. Hear from experts around the country on how to take your health into your hands. Take control and build a foundation of health for the life that you want to live. And now here's your hosts, Jason Garrett and Raghav Sharma. So let me tell you guys a little bit of a funny story about this episode. So we actually have been trying to record with this guest for the past five or six months. And it just, for some reason, never panned out. Like there's always something coming up either in our schedules or in his schedule. And we finally got him. So today I'm super happy to do this episode with Dr. Uh, Bobby Bowers. Um, And for those of you guys, um, just a little introduction. He is a physical medicine and rehab doctor. Um, That's what I'm going into. And he also did a fellowship in sports medicine. Interestingly enough, he also did a PhD in exercise physiology, which we'll talk about a little bit later why he decided to go that route. And uh, he's also the team physician for Georgia Tech Baseball, the Atlanta Braves, and the CP Skyhawks, which are the G League affiliate of the Atlanta Hawks, which almost made it to the NBA Finals this year. Above all, he's a proud father, and we are proud to welcome him to this podcast. Finally, welcome. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It finally finally worked out. I was, yeah, it was, most of it was probably my fault as far as just different. I, I do a really bad job with my schedule of looking ahead of time. So we, you know, once I agreed to do it back in February and there was all this stuff that I forget to look into. So my fault that it took this long, but here we are. I mean, I mean, one of the reasons was I think a tree fell into your house and it like destroyed part of it. I think that's a legitimate <laughs> reason to postpone a yeah. podcast. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that pops up. Yeah, that happened back at the end of October, and just a lot of stuff pops up because of that, us having to do different things. And so that's made made my schedule kind of crazy between, you know, we moved four times between October and and May. And so just a lot of different stuff popping up because of that. For sure. Well, you're here now. And the first thing, I guess, is just tell us a little bit about yourself, why you went the DOPHD route, because that's pretty unique. You hear MD, PhDs, which are already rare, but not many DOPHDs. just tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so um, so we'll just do the the long story. So born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia, and just grew up a, a sports fanatic kid and played basically every sport you could play growing up. You know, eventually you have to decide, you know, which sports you want to play. So through through high school, ended up playing football and baseball, and then wanted to play baseball in college. And that kind of directed me to, to Furman University, where where I went for undergrad. It was a small division one school in, in Greenville, South Carolina. So I got to play baseball there, which is like the best experience of my life. Playing a, playing a college sport was was amazing. And that's, you know, I, I uh, highly recommend it to people that have that opportunity. And so, you know, when I went to college, I didn't really have any clue what I wanted to do. My my dad's an accountant, and so I went in thinking I was going to be a business major, and then that just didn't really interest me. And and eventually found my found my way to health and exercise science because it just happened to be what what interested me the most. I had no clue what I was going to do with it. And once once you get into that, you you realize there's not a a ton of of high level career opportunity with just an undergraduate degree in, in exercise science. And so started looking into to graduate schools on that end and kind of really got into the academic side of, of exercise science towards the end of my college career. And, and then uh, just decided that I probably wanted to do a PhD in exercise science and be a college professor. And so I applied to different programs and, and eventually found my way to Auburn University for the, the, for a master's program in exercise science, and then moved on to, to my PhD and uh, as well. Went to Auburn because basically, you know, my both my parents went there. I grew up a huge Auburn sports fan, and I just 
kind of naturally would feel like I probably was all, always destined to kind of get there to to some extent. I wasn't good enough to play baseball there in an SEC school. So found my way there and and got my initially got master's of education in exercise science, but never really planned on stopping there and eventually trans- transitioned into into exercise physiology. So the lab that I was in, um, shout out to Dr. Peter Grandjean, who's now a dean actually at University of Mississippi. He was my my lab advisor. We did more clinical exercise physiology work. So we were doing a lot of stress testing and looking at weight loss metabolism and things like that. And so we always had physicians around that were were overseeing our stress testing and things like that. And so one of the physicians that was with us a lot, Dr. Jack Mahuron, who's a, a family medicine attending in Montgomery, he always had residents and med students that he would bring with him into the lab. And so I got to talking with them and, and just, I think, through doing the clinical exercise physiology side of things, talking with the med students and residents that he would bring with him. I just kind of got interested in in medicine and and really at that point I didn't know any anything about DO versus MD or anything like that. Just mm-hmm. you know, always thought of docs as being MDs, but he was a DO and had the med students he brought were from the the PCOM campus that's in that just north mm-hmm. of Atlanta. Uh, and I just happened to be from Atlanta, and so I got interested in in going to that school and obviously and made some connections there. So it was, it was kind of a natural transition for me. I could kind of go back home to Atlanta afterwards. And so really when, when I was in grad school, kind of a year before I was finishing up, I just decided, you know what, why not? You know, I was still, I was still young and wasn't married yet or didn't have kids, you know, didn't really. So I just decided, you know, might as well. I was still only 26. So I was like, I'll take the MCAT one time. We'll see how it goes. And I'll apply to schools. And if I get in anywhere, I'll go. If not, then I'm just going to do, I actually had a, a postdoc, just a research-based postdoc lined up at, at Vanderbilt to go into a lab there. And so I was going to do that if it didn't, but it just turned out the medicine thing worked out. I, you know, I decided to go back to the, the, PCOM Georgia campus. It's just north of Atlanta to to do med school, and the rest is kind of kind of history from there. So it just happened. It kind of happened organically. It was definitely not. If you had even told me when I started started graduate school that I was going to end up going into medicine, I would have thought you were crazy. It just kind of naturally happened that um, that interest. And so, and you know, when I I was probably a little strange when I started med school because before I started, I really you know I knew. What I wanted to do, I was always, you know, I played college sports. I was always a sports fan. Sports medicine always really interested me. And so I looked at all the different ways to get into sports medicine and, and you know, realized I didn't really want to be an orthopedic surgeon. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't a, a route that that I wanted to take. Not I actually loved my orthopedic surgery residency, uh, not residency, um, rotation, rotation yeah. in med school, but it just didn't want that lifestyle, at least initially. And so PM&R, um, as I looked up kind of other ways to get into sports medicine for med school, I got interested in PM&R and I was probably one of the weird, the weird kids that had a really strong interest in PM&R going into to med school. My other real interest was endocrinology actually, because we did mm. a lot of weight loss metabolism yeah. at, in grad school. But, you know, you realize that you're managing a lot of, of, you know, it's a lot of diabetes management and stuff like that. And just wasn't something I was super interested in. So I, I got through, you know, I, I think after about, a year of med school, I was kind of honed in on PM&R and getting the sports medicine through the PM&R route. So that's kind of the long-winded story of of my path to medicine and, and sports medicine, kind of how I got here. One of the things I always love about this podcast when I talk to different physicians and I hear like how they got into medicine, um, it's always just interesting. You have like the group of people that are kind of like not necessarily apathetic, but it just kind of happens at some point, naturally organic like yourself. And there's the other group, which are like, I was like, trying to go into medicine since I was five years old. Right. Um, so that's always interesting. And that's also interesting. We actually have that in common where we both knew we wanted to go into PM&R relatively early. Um, when I was in under, I always knew I wanted to go into medicine since I was young, just because my own medical problems. But um, when I got to, I started like powerlifting and all that in undergrad and not necessarily into sports, but more like just iron type sports. And uh, I actually met my a mentor who happened to be a physiatrist as I was trying to shadow to get into medical school. He happened to be a physiatrist. So I was like, this is it. And then since then throughout medical school, I was like, yep, I'm sound physiatry. So that's cool. Yeah. Very rare that med students start, um, 
you know, start med school and want to go into to PM&R, even, even at Emory, I mean, we have some med school classes at Emory that go through and nobody goes into PM&R. Mm-hmm. And we have, you know, I'm biased, but we have what I like to consider the best PMR residency in the South. And, and it's just right there. And, and students just don't, you know, aren't exposed to it. So we've, we've done a lot to try to expose med students more to PMNR through their training at Emory, but it still is, there's a little bit of an uphill battle, but it's um, it definitely is not, not a specialty that a lot of med students get, get high level exposure to during the course of training. Yeah, and especially when you were going through it and going through the match, I'm sure it probably wasn't even nearly as popular as it is now. I know it's kind of oh, like yeah. blowing up right now. There were 10 people in our class that matched into PM&R. I'd like to think I had a part of that because I was talking about it since M1, but there's yeah. a lot of us now. Yeah, it's great. I mean, I'm really involved in our, our residency interviews for our program at Emory mm-hmm. and just looking at the applications now versus even even my year. I did I interviewed in 2012, graduated med school in 2013, and just looking at, you know, what was considered a good step score for my years versus what I see now is, is craziness. So <laughs> it's definitely is becoming a much more competitive specialty to get into. For sure. All right. So let's move on from that. And you're a sports medicine physician. And one of the questions that we have for everyone coming on this podcast is kind of what does preventive medicine mean from their eyes? Because everyone has a slightly different uh, perspective on it, slightly different background. So what does it mean to you? Yeah, so I think there's based on what I do, preventive medicine kind of comes in. There's two different avenues to kind of think about it. One is the purely sports preventive medicine, whereas we're looking at an athlete and our goal is to prevent them from having injuries. And so, yeah, that we're we're there to kind of treat their injuries when they get it, but how do we go about helping them to to prevent having injuries? And I think that's where some of the, you know, the non-medicine people, the the trainers and the strength and conditioning specialists and the nutritionists, that's where everyone comes in there. Um, and it's really to, you know, for an athlete, whether they're young or they're older, the, a multi-pronged approach to try to prevent injuries. And so whether that's, you know, balance, coordination, working on speed, working on strength, whether that's through a certified strength and conditioning specialist or, or other qualified individuals, I think that is kind of what we look at for preventive medicine on the, on the sports side. Now, preventive medicine just in, because I just see regular musculoskeletal complaints in clinics. So just your your everyday person that comes in with a musculoskeletal complaint, say they have knee osteoarthritis, and, and with the obesity epidemic we have in our country, you frequently get knee osteoarthritis with someone that, that is obese. And so then that's a ho- totally different path um, of talking about preventative medicine, where you go into talking about weight loss and diet and exercise and those sorts of things. And you talk with them about, okay, we're going to treat your knee pain, but how do we prevent you from having further musculoskeletal problems, even having discussions with them about other metabolic diseases and things like that. So I think there are, for what I do and what I see on a daily basis, there's kind of two avenues of preventive medicine, both one on the athlete side and one on, on kind of your everyday person side. Sure. And you kind of answered uh, the follow-up question I was already going to ask you, but um, I guess maybe to clarify and expand that a little bit, what do you do as a sports medicine physician? Because I know when uh, I, I have, I kind of want to go into sports. That's one of the fellowship ideas that I have. When I tell people that they're like, um, so you're going to work on this team. What are you going to do for them? So can you kind of expand on exactly what you do for both the athletes and for the general population side? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a bit of, um, it's a bit of a misconception. People think that physicians actually work for teams and that's their primary job. I think as a sports medicine physician, that that's your extracurricular activity essentially is working for the teams. You still have your, your day-to-day job where you're seeing patients in clinic all day and they're coming in with musculoskeletal complaints. So for me, the people uh, that I see in clinic, I do, I do non-surgical orthopedics or musculoskeletal medicine is essentially what I do. And so um, can see people with with complaints from shoulder pain, elbow pain, knee pain, you know, all of all of those things. And so that's that's what I do on a daily basis. And then we have our opportunities to 
to see or to help take care of sports teams where we're covering different sporting events and and helping to cover the events for those teams. And I've just been I've been super blessed to be able to have opportunities through Emory for some of these really high level teams. And so being a, a former college baseball player, baseball is, is really kind of my thing. And so being able mm-hmm. to do Georgia Tech baseball and this year is my first year being able to help out with the Braves. And that's really, you know, you're helping sometimes you'll see those athletes in clinic, but it's pretty rare that that they actually come into clinic to see you. So it really is more extracurricular. You go over to the stadium, go over to the field, help cover events. I kind of think of it as for a sports medicine physician, that's kind of your, your call schedule. So we don't do overnight call in the hospital. We're not on call at the hospital, but we're spending a lot of our time outside of clinic covering athletic events and and going in and, and taking care of athletes where, where they are. And so, um, so that, I think that's what what it looks like for a, a sports medicine physician um, for me. Yeah, and when it comes to preventive medicine, you talked a little bit already about like on the outpatient side. Um, if someone has knee osteoarthritis, you're kind of helping them lose weight and do things like around that, working on their diet, and nutrition. How much do you do, and uh, do you kind of have a team approach to that, or is that more of like a you're doing this for the patient? Yeah, so that that's something I'm really big into is the team approach, and I think you learn that through PMNR. Um, in medicine and in medical school, you see, I, I think you'll see a lot on social media and different places, uh, criticizing physicians for not having a lot of nutrition oh, education yeah. and things like that. But I think, you know, there's so much to learn in medical school about medicine. We go to medical school to learn medicine and we have super well-trained nutrition professionals, you know, whether they have a PhD in nutritional sciences or they're a registered dietitian, we have nutrition professionals that are dedicated just to nutrition. And I think we do a fairly poor job through our, through, I think through medical training in our system of, of, of creating easy path for a physician to, to refer someone to a nutritionist to talk about diet. Um, but, but I think the, the best way to go about doing all of this is to have a good team approach and to have good relationships with people in, in your community that you can work with on the nutrition side and on the exercise side. And so, um, I think that's, that's something I'm really big on is working, working as a team and building good relationships with, with strength conditioning specialists and nutritionists, uh, or dietitians to be able to, to send your patients to them for really thoroughly looking into those aspects of things. You focus on the medical side and give them some brief counseling on those things and how to get to where, where we want to get, but really relying on some of your colleagues that are experts in those other areas to help do uh, some of the really thorough work. And one of the questions I was going to ask you actually later on in this episode was a little bit um, kind of similar to this. Um, Right now we're talking about like nutritionists, physicians and the like, um, and getting someone on the right nutritional path, maybe to weight loss or to whatever their goals are at that point. But within uh, musculoskeletal health and medicine in general, there's also kind of another team approach. And that is you have the physician, you have the trainer who is kind of working on the exercise and you have therapists for kind of helping um, maybe help people with injuries and whatever else it is. So can you kind of describe what that teamwork looks like and where it is right now? Yeah, so definitely on the sports medicine side, when we're caring for an athlete, they're definitely, again, is a need to have a strong team-based approach. And, and you mentioned the, the players that in that team, you have the physician, physical therapist, athletic trainer, um, for me on a daily basis and at Emory, for most of our sports medicine physicians, we actually, uh, work with an athletic trainer in clinic and they kind of work as our, as our physician extender, as someone who has a lot of knowledge in sports medicine. And so on a daily basis, we're working with them closely that way. But then we're also working closely with the athletic trainers that are on the field with the teams that we help to take care of. And they, um, you know, you see a huge difference with, say, we're thinking, looking at high school, we see a huge difference in the high schools that have athletic trainers versus that don't have athletic trainers. Those high schools that have athletic trainers, it's easy to communicate with them and say, okay, I saw this athlete in clinic. This is injury. This is our plan for getting them back. This is how long we think that they're going to be out. And without that athlete having to come into your clinic, you have these open lines of communication to help get that athlete back onto the field 
um, in a safe way. And the schools that don't have athletic trainers, it's just really hard to keep track of the athlete and feel comfortable that you're getting them back in, in the safest manner possible. And so that's where our athletic trainers are, are super, super helpful and, and play such a huge role in, in getting athletes back to, back to play quickly. Um, and then on, on the other side of things, also having really, really strong relationships with physical therapists that are in your area where you know, because there's there's good physical therapy and there's not good physical therapy. So someone that walks Definitely. into a clinic and they're, they go in, they have an appointment with a physical therapist, they're one of five or six patients that are in there. It's just kind of go do your exercises over in the corner and check in with you when you're done. There's that versus really hands-on kind of one-to-one physical therapy or where um, where, where patients are getting really high quality, high quality treatment from the therapist. And I think building relationships with therapists in the community where you know that you can send your patients to those physical therapists to get really high quality PT, um, is, is important as well. And so, and, and you're sending your athletes to these physical therapists. So I think just having strong relationships with physical therapists in the community, and then also being very open and and available for the athletic trainers at the schools is is a big deal and, and kind of helps to create ideal care for for athletes. And I think one of the uh, things that really helps there in improving outcomes for both like um, athletes and for just general patients is that continued level of support and care and knowing that someone's there. And when you have uh, personal trainers or a just team trainer, whatever it is, athletic trainer, you have someone that's kind of um, focused on you and whoever's on that team and helping you design it based on your injury, based on helping you get back to whatever play, um, whether it's football, baseball, whatever it is. So there's that. And then also on the physical therapy side, one of the reasons that I think that those like uh, multi-patient centers don't work where they have like six patients, they're juggling them all, they're all in the corner doing exercises, you don't build a relationship. And there's just kind of overseeing and make sure, hey, do this, do that, do this. And you don't really get to know the person. And it also kind of decreases the follow-up on um, home exercises. So if someone just comes in, they're not really going to continue the exercise at home if they don't buy in, they don't understand what's going on, they had no good relationship for why they're com- even coming to physical therapy, whereas the other side definitely helps. Yeah. And, and I think one of the, a big shame is, is when you know socioeconomic factors come in come into this as well. It's hard to get people in lower socioeconomic areas, really good physical therapy, just like we have, have food deserts where, you know, people in lower socioeconomic, um, areas don't have great access to healthy foods. They also don't have from a musculoskeletal standpoint, they don't have great access to good physical therapy, whether there's just not a lot in that area, or they have that kind of lower, lower quality physical therapy. And I think people just get have you know bad experiences with therapy, and they're really hesitant to do anymore in the future because I don't think it really helped them. So I think that's just another hurdle we have to have to learn to get over in the future is finding ways for people that are in lower socioeconomic areas good access to physical therapy because so many musculoskeletal complaints can be fixed with physical therapy alone, regardless of if I'm doing an injection in the office or doing any sort of intervention, um, good high quality physical therapy can fix so many complaints. And so I think finding uh, where where patients, all patients can have access to good therapy is is a really big deal. Um, and then certainly the, the insurance component comes into it too, which also is, is a shame that, that every, <laughs> so many things are dictated on the insurance side uh, and limiting patients' access to good, high-quality physical therapy. That's actually one of the things I'm also, also interested in, and I'm trying to read as much as I can about future trends and how we can help improve access to care in all these places. And one of the books I just read, um, I'm already blanking on the title somehow, but in that book, they talk about how everyone has a smartphone at this point. So more smartphone-based things will probably be the direction forward so that it's like easily available. Everyone has a smartphone. Just you got to find a way to capitalize on that. Make sure that you can still get somewhat of the human connection and the buy-in at that point. And hopefully it helps, but I'm interested to see where it goes as uh, our careers develop. Yeah. So one thing that's been um, that's been really good for me because of the pandemic is it has brought to my attention different resources that we have using your smartphone and the technology. And so um, actually a, a recent fellowship graduate who has a really, really strong 
business mind is is a medical officer for for an app called Limber Health, and mm. Limber Health is a home based exercise therapy app that I have used a ton with my patients over the course of the last year, year and a half. And patients have had really good feedback for, so they get amazing. Um, it, it's eight to 12 week program. They have really easy to follow videos. And so they get, you know, I think it's three, three therapy sessions a week, 20 to 25 minutes each, really easy videos to follow for their program. It's eight to 12 weeks. And I've had really good um, feedback from my patients regarding this. So it's something that um, either if a patient can't afford physical therapy or they're still hesitant to go into in-person physical therapy because um, of the pandemic, then it's something that that I frequently am, am having patients use. And it's been really helpful for my clinic and given me given me another option, which has been really helpful. So I, I agree. I think that being able for us to use our technology and smartphones in order to provide high quality physical therapy uh, care, I think is is something that we need to look into further. And I think on top of physical therapy, one of the other things I'd love to see in one of my kind of reservations with uh, physicians at this point is we don't value personal trainer, qualified personal trainers. Let me put that asterisk there. Yep. Very qualified true. personal trainers enough because I think a lot of times you just have someone that gets injured, you go to therapy, but then you kind of just drop off. And those are all quote unquote corrective exercises, right? You don't have someone building a base, unless you're an athlete when they're working with them, like an athletic trainer, you don't have right. general popular, general population people kind of going and working with a trainer to make sure they're getting stronger, getting a, like they're being loaded properly. They're following all the exercise guidelines. I think that'd be hugely beneficial. Um, do you think that we're going to start seeing more interactions between physicians and qualified personal trainers? I, I personally would love that because just like you said, with, with physical therapy, we're learning kind of corrective exercises for, for some of these certain conditions. But then apart from you know, you having an injury, just learning good functional movement patterns for you to be able to to live life injury free on a day to day basis, I think is is a huge deal. And if if I, I think that we need to have better avenues for physicians to to talk to highly qualified personal trainers. So like you said, personal trainers that have um, that <laughs> there's have a lot the, of junk out there. So right, make sure they got to exactly. be qualified that have the appropriate amount of training, maybe a CSCS that can teach good functional movement patterns to people to try to prevent injury as well, I think it is, is a really big deal. And to be honest, I think at this point, we, we don't have good access to that on, on the medical side. There are not open lines of communication. And I, I think it's pretty hard to find a good, highly qualified um, personal trainer that can can do those things for you. So it's, that's something I think we need huge amounts of improvement on. 100% agree with that. And I hope I can help find some sort of solution to that in my career. Um, <laughs> we'll see what happens. We want to take a quick break to remind you that this podcast is not intended for medical advice and is for educational and informational purposes only. We also want to remind you of our Instagram page at PreventPod, where we share various content relating to each episode that you can share with your friends if you enjoy our episode. And lastly, don't forget to sign up for our mailing list so you know right away when an episode goes up at www.thepreventivemedicinepodcast.com. And with that, let's get back into this episode. So we've been kind of dancing around the subject of sports injuries, which is what you specialize in, obviously. And one of the questions that I want to ask you is kind of when it comes to, let's say an athlete gets injured and we have them coming back to sport eventually, there's a lot of fear and kind of hesitation that can come with that because there's the little voice in the back of your head that might be saying, I might get injured again. What if I get injured again? What do we do about this? And can you kind of prevent that voice? And how do you safely get an athlete back mentally and physically? Yeah, I think that, that we just go back to something we've already talked about. It's about strong relationships and open lines of communication with our athletic trainers and physical therapists. So, yeah, I mean, you're the one in clinic that's doing the diagnosis. And if there's any sort of intervention or treatment that you're going to do in the office. So, you know, if you're doing a sort of an injection or procedure, you're the one that's doing that and then walking them through, okay, this is what your return to sport is going to look like. But we rely on physical therapists and athletic trainers to carry that plan out. 
And so they're the ones that are actually going to have more contact with the athlete through their recovery process and their return to play process that are going to play a huge role in making their mind at ease and showing them their progress. And so I think that's the biggest way to help to combat hesitation with an athlete. You can provide them um, with reassurance when you're checking up with them periodically, whether it's at six weeks or, or two months or things like that. But the therapists and athletic trainers that they're seeing a lot more frequently are the ones that are going to help to to really carry that out and make them comfortable with returning to sport. And so I think just, ha- again, having those open lines of communication where everyone is talking is, is going to help to quell some of that hesitance that the athlete might have. Definitely. And I want to ask, maybe just for my curiosity out of your uh, scope of practice is, um, are, since you have also a background in exercise physiology, are you kind of assisting and talking to these athletes about how much they should be doing exercise wise, what exercises they should be doing and kind of adjusting their load appropriately? Yeah. I mean, I think because of my background, I probably talk with people about that more. Um, but I think I do a lot more of communicating those thoughts with the athletic trainers and with the therapists and, and kind of let them use their, their expertise to, to drive that. So like we have, I have like some rehab protocols that I'll give the patients after certain treatments and say, okay, this is what it'll look like. This is how you're going to progress through. These are the kind of exercises that you'll do first and you'll progress this, you know, like this along the way. And that's just to give them kind of a general idea, but that I certainly leave that up to the, the physical therapist to use their expertise to make those determinations. For sure. So within the scope of your practice, I know one of the things that physiatrists do as sports medicine physicians or just in general is they use injections. And one of those is like these uh, new orthobiologics. And we actually had a podcast conversation with Dr. Laskowski, who is from uh, Mayo Clinic Sports Medicine. And he talked to him about about them a little bit. But um, can you talk a little bit more about them, why they're beneficial and why we use them? Yeah. So so the, I think the way that... That or the reason that we're interested in, in orthobiologics, and this for those listening, if they're not familiar with them, it orthobiologics are cellular treatments in order to help stimulate the body's natural healing, essentially to help to to heal injured tissue. And and there's varying levels of evidence supporting you know the different types of biologic treatments that we have. And I think the reason that that we're interested in these is it's it's not just about pain relief, it's about creating tissue healing as well. And so we know looking at the data that corticosteroids, which are kind of the default injections that physicians go to, that corticosteroids are not a vitamin for the body. They they are they have chondrotoxicity or toxicity to cartilage, they have tenotoxicity or toxicity to to tendons, and so it, it really is, you know, if you're doing these things more than one time, it is, it's detrimental to the patient or to the athlete. We have data showing that it can help arthritis come on in the knee faster. It can lead to um, tendon rupture. And so though j- just using corticosteroid for everything is not in the patient's or the athlete's best interest. And so we have we, we have more interest now in some of these cellular-based treatments to help to create tissue healing. Um, you know, drawbacks to those is they're generally not a quick fix. That tissue healing process can take a, a period of time. You know, the period that we use or is is around 12 weeks or three months. So we allow that healing kind of time to happen. Um, but that's the reason that that we're interested in these treatments is is to help help it be a a, a healthy. Uh, injection for the patient to help to stimulate healing as opposed to purely working for pain relief um, using using corticosteroids. Definitely. And have you seen in your experience, are these, uh, do you lean on them a little bit more or does it kind of depend on insurance, which way it goes in the practical world or? Yeah, I, I think the biggest biggest shame with it is is insurance coverage. So I would use something like plate-rich plasma in my um in my practice a lot more if there wasn't out of pocket expense with it for patients. So um, pretty much everything that you want to use play the rich plasma for is not going to be covered by insurance. There's, you know, every once in a while there's an insurance that'll cover it for certain things, but we have, 
really high quality level one data for the treatment of tennis elbow, lateral epicondylopathy, uh, knee osteoarthritis, um, greater trochanteric pen syndrome or gluteal tendinopathy on the, on the side of the hip, gluteus medius and minimus, um, where, you know, where I would want to use, uh, something like PRP very frequently, but I'm not able to because of, of it not being covered by insurance and there being an out of pocket expense for patients. Um, and, and it's funny because it, it's, it's there in orthopedics and sports medicine and musculoskeletal medicine. So many of the treatments that are covered by insurance are not very evidence-based, do not have high quality. <laughs> they don't have I started high noticing quality. That. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. They don't have high quality data supporting them. There's actually, um, I can pull it up right here. Uh, there's a really good paper. I may not be able to find it, but there's a really good paper from, uh, is in 2015, just looking at how much of the, the treatments in orthopedics are supported by high quality level one data when the treatment is compared against conservative management. And it's only about 20% of that, that, number could be uh, could be off by a bit. So only about 20% of those treatments are supported by level one data. Whereas for some of these uh, pathologies that we treat with PRP, we have multiple level one studies showing that they work. Yet I can't do that. And we can do something else that isn't um, based on, you know, what insurances say that they'll cover. So it is frustrating to an extent. I, my practice would probably be a lot more based in some of these biologic injections if there, if there wasn't an issue with insurance coverage, but, but there is. And so we just have to, uh, have to try to get around that the best way we can. Certain ways that we can do that for some of these tendon pathologies is, um, is you can just do a simple, what's called like a needle fenestration. And so what you can do is look at the tendon with ultrasound and then take a needle and just needle that tendon. And that can create some localized bleeding in the area, which essentially restarts the healing cascade. Um, and so we can do that. We see really good success with that. So that's just, that's like one step below PRP is not as robust. And, and so there are some ways we can get around it where you can still do things that can stimulate healing without having to use one of these non-insurance covered biologic medications. And so there are ways that we can work around that. Um, you can use prolotherapy or dextrose prolotherapy that, um, that people can use. And, and that's just using a, a dextrose and saline solution to stimulate healing as well. Um, there's a website that's called Dr. Reeves, D-R-E-V-E-S. Dean Reeves is a physician that uses a lot of prolotherapy. And on his website, he has listed all of the studies that support using prolotherapy for different conditions. And so you can go and look at that data. So prolotherapy is something that, um, that I use fairly frequently in my clinic as well as a healthier injection option to stimulate the body's mm -hmm. natural healing response. And so there's some ways we can get, get around it without using. Um, so the things that we generally will use now in biologics that aren't covered by insurance are Platelet-rich plasma, which is using your own blood platelets, bone marrow aspirate concentrate, where we take some of the bone marrow out of the back of your pelvis and concentrate that down, has a lot of healthy cells in it. And also some of your adipose tissue has some healthy cells as well that can can help stimulate healing. But all of those are are not covered by insurance. And so um, in order to kind of get around not using those, if, in, if a patient can't afford those non-insurance-based um, treatments, we can use prolotherapy or needle fenestration or different things like that to try try to get to the same place. A really good point you brought up is that a lot of things that actually work uh, for sports medicine for helping people get better are not covered by insurance. And a lot of things that aren't very evidence-based are. Um, when it comes to non-interventional um, kind of things like injections and whatnot, when it's non-interventional, what are some of the evidence-based things that actually help patients get better? Let's say maybe they can't afford something out of pocket or you just don't want to do a, a steroid injection because maybe they're on their third or fourth one. What can you do that's evidence-based that's not interventional? So I think it depends on, on what pathology we're looking at. So for, say, for patellar tendinopathy, so mm -hmm. like what we also call jumper's knee, um, we have high quality data showing that physical therapy with progressive tendon loading, um, 
does really well for getting that back. And so I think just understanding the um, the literature on the therapy that can treat the different um, the different pathologies and not just, you know, if there's something where, you know, there's a specific therapy protocol that will work and has been studied, um, being able to put that on a physical therapy prescription. So patellar tendinopathy, progressive tendon loading um, on the prescription, I think uh, just knowing that data can be helpful, um, even if you're not going to do any sort of interventional treatment or anything like that. Yeah. And I know the world of kind of non-interventional treatments is coming out with more and more evidence. Um, for example, like with manual therapy, I think there was a recent study that several people that have followed on Instagram shared. And I also read it, um, read it was that sham therapy and manual therapy were kind of the same, um, effectiveness at treating whatever pathology they were in that study. So, uh, kind of a lot of what some physical therapists do, chiropractors or that manual therapy doesn't even do anything. Um, you might as well just do some sort of loaded training program. Also, I think there was another study that someone shared where like uh, people had similar outcomes between um, several surgeries and just non-surgical treatment, just with progressive therapy and loading of the joint in the appropriate manners. So I think the world of um, non-invasive treatment is starting to get a lot more evidence behind it, which I really like. Yeah, um, a lot of those modalities that you mentioned um, stuff like cupping and stuff like that. There's really not, not a lot of data supporting mm -hmm. any of those, any of those modalities. And so, um, some patients may find them helpful and I think that's perfectly fine, but it certainly are things that aren't covered or aren't um, supported by high level data. Uh, manual therapy is, is one of those who, what manual therapy means different things to different therapists. And so when we say manual therapy in the literature, what is that? So being able to mm -hmm. define what that is, manual therapy hurt, helps in certain situations. There's, um, I think there's some, some shoulder, I'm just reaching back kind of in the back of my mind, trying to remember some stuff. Um, there is, some data, I think, saying that manual therapy along with with exercise for shoulder impingement syndrome does better than exercise alone. Um, but it's really being able to define what that manual therapy mm -hmm. is. And so um, but yeah, certainly to to kind of drive home your point, a lot of those modalities and passive modalities are not covered by or uh, uh, not supported by high level evidence. For sure. And we're going to jump topics just a little bit here to one of your other interests, which is medical education. Um, you were saying that you're kind of involved in the residency interview process and whatnot. And based on your Twitter and just your uh, social media in general, you're pretty interested in it. So what do you think we can do um, in terms of education regarding getting more physicians educated about either preventive practices or like the importance of exercise and helping patients just generally be healthier? Yeah, I think I touched on this a bit Um a bit before. And there's so much you have to learn in medical school, being able to add on a lot of exercise physiology and nutrition is just really tough without adding mm -hmm. extra years to your training that, that you would need. Um, and so I think we just need to do a better job in the medical education world of creating avenues for physicians to interact and have, um, have relationships with these other experts. So strength conditioning specialists and nutritionists and, and these other, um, you know, professions that I've talked about before, we, we just have to do a better job of, of making people realize that they're specialists and, and experts in these fields out there that help in the care for patients uh, so that we can care for patients together as opposed to physicians kind of being on an island and, and you know, being made to think that you're the, you're the authority on all these different things when you really mm -hmm. have no business, um, you know, talking about, about certain things that you don't, aren't up to date on the literature. And, and so I think that that is, uh, it'd be hard to add all those things in a medical education just because of so much stuff that we have to learn in medicine. Um, but we need to do a better job of helping to facilitate relationships between different specialties. So like I said, whether that's strength conditioning specialists, nutritionists, et cetera, uh, to help in the care for patients. 
I 100% agree with that. And I think one of the ways we can accomplish that is, um, I don't know about how your fourth year medical school went, but um, for us, it's kind of just you apply for residency, you do your like your away rotations, your auditions, then you kind of just wait. And the rest of medical school doesn't quote unquote matter. You're not really investing in your rotations or whatnot. So I think a good time to do that, whether it's at the end of medical school, maybe some point in residency is do a rotation. Um, with someone like a registered dietitian, with someone like a um, physical therapist, maybe personal trainer, combine those two, however it ends up being logistically. But that way at the end of um, your fourth year, it's not really like a quote unquote stressful rotation where your hours are like 80 hours a week on ortho or something, but you're still getting exposure to it. You understand these people exist. Um, one of the things that you were saying was that um, physicians just kind of take over those realms. And I think one of those reasons is because they don't know that they're specialists that actually do these things. Like they don't know they can refer to a dietitian. Instead, they start reading, quote unquote, books on nutrition and end up with some completely non-evidence-based ideas because someone wrote a book on it that had an MD behind their name. Yeah. Um, so just doing these rotations will really help the awareness in them. Like just maybe they could learn something so they know how to refer some very basic stuff that they could recommend. I think that'd be a great idea and a great addition to medical education. Yeah, I, I 100% agree. Um, just because someone writes a diet book and has an MD behind their name, you know, an MD doesn't make you <laughs> an authority on 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 nutrition and and diet. And I think the the number or the amount of misinformation in 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 written books by MDs on diet. So, you know, whether that I don't know, I don't whether that's Stephen Gundry or David Perlmutter, <laughs> these people that are that are out there running. Or Mercola. Running. Yeah, let's, I mean, if I'm going to start getting worked up. If we start getting into these people, uh, like, we, gonna, can, we can put a I'm going to start getting that. really worked up. But but I 100% agree with you. If we could, in medical education, if we can build in a nutrition rotation um, in, <clears throat> in fourth year where you – you see patients with registered dietitian and realize what they have to offer. So that way, when I'm in clinic counseling a patient on, on weight loss and I have 10 minutes with them, you know, you could talk about diet for an hour with a patient and talk to them about the appropriate way um, to, to go about their diet, finding the right diet for them. Because there's really, there's not one diet that works for everyone. Mm -hmm. You have these, especially on social media, these diet camps. So you have the, the low carb camp and the vegan camp, and there's no one diet that works for everyone. The best diet is a diet that works for you. And so a nutritionist being able to sit down with a patient and talk through, okay, what foods do you like? What do you not like? How do we put together a diet that's going to help you with weight loss? Because in general, kind of as a general rule, 75 to 80% of weight loss is based on diet and nutrition. And so um, being able to, to have a thorough conversation um, is is a huge help in that in that realm, as opposed to trying to talk about nutrition and diet in your 10 minute appointment with this patient for their knee arthritis. Um, is so so being able to uh, refer a patient and say, hey, would you like to talk to a nutritionist about your diet? There's so many patients that are so open to talking about that. Um, that So if you have that avenue to be able to easily refer a patient for that conversation um, is a huge help in just kind of the overall care, not just the musculoskeletal care, but overall care um, of that patient. And, and in medical school, if we can, can add in different rotations to not necessarily make a physician or a medical student an expert in that realm, but just to make them realize that you have avenues to refer patients to to really get in the weeds with this stuff with someone who knows what they're talking about, uh, I think would would you know be a, a huge thing for preventative medicine and, and just preventative care in general. And the double-edged sword there is that um, physicians are an authority uh, in patients' eyes, but they're not necessarily an authority in everything that they say. The only authority in what they went to medical school for. So really improving that awareness of all these other people and finding the right authority is probably key. And now that I think about it even more, I think that putting at the end of fourth year, so I'm just expanding and like on my own mental thoughts yeah. now, but putting at the end of fourth year would actually be pretty useful because now you already know the people who are going to primary care because they've already applied into um, family medicine, internal medicine, even like your physical medicine rehab, or you're just more primary care focused, like patient facing things versus your surgeons. You already know who's going into it. So now just add a rotation and or two rotations and at the end of M4 about a little bit on dietitian, a little bit on like training and just therapy and those kinds of things. And all of a sudden, I think you have what you need right there. Yep. 
hundred percent agree. hundred percent agree. It's not recreating the wheel. It's not, it's not making you an expert in these things, but again, making the, the new physician realize the, um, the resources that they have out there to appropriately care for patients, especially for lifestyle interventions, um, could go such a long way, uh, and able to, you know, and us doing, you know, being able to, to appropriately, uh, bring preventive medicine into our practices. And when it comes to preventive medicine for patients, um, one of the components of that is obviously exercise. And you're talking about physicians, not necessarily being an authority in exercise, but, um, obviously doing something is good and recommending your patients to exercise is probably a pretty good suggestion, whether or not you're an authority in it. So, um, how do we kind of get more people exercising? Because just saying, go do this is not necessarily the best solution. So is that something you do on a daily basis? And how do we do that better? Yeah. And, and I think we kind of talked about this uh, as well. We don't have great avenues to be able to get people to appropriately mm-hmm. trained, um, you know, personal trainers yeah. or certified strength conditioning specialists to be able to help with this. And so I think that's one of the biggest hurdles we have as far as being able to get people to, to exercise more. If we had if we had those avenues, it'd be a lot easier. I think the discussion that I have with people the most is just trying to figure out what they like to do and not saying, oh, you have to do this. Like if you tell a patient, oh, you have knee arthritis, you need to go do water aerobics, soft load the joint. Like what if that patient can't swim or hates the water and things like that? I, f- I feel like there are way too many people out there that tell people what they have to do and there's nothing that they have to do. So you, you just have to have the conversation with them and figure out what they like and, and tell them, you know, it doesn't exercise does not have to be a miserable experience. You know, we can have a discussion and figure out what you like to do. And then once we figure out what you like to do, I can give you recommendations of things that that you might find that will help you exercise and be active that that you don't find are, are miserable to do. And regardless of, yeah, you, weight loss in and of itself has has tons of metabolic effects, but exercise without weight loss alone has metabolic benefits. So low intensity exercise without weight loss still has metabolic benefits for people. And so just getting out and walking and, and doing really light stuff will still have some benefits. And, and so I think just being able to counsel patients and tell them it doesn't have to be miserable, find things that they like to do. And, and as they get more active, they'll be more open to other things, I think. And one of the things I want to reiterate is that although someone might be a sports medicine physician, doesn't mean that everyone who's coming to see them is an athlete or is exercising. Um, seeing athletes is maybe a part of what sports medicine physicians do, but that's like he said, an extracurricular. It's not necessarily they're only going to see athletes or they even see athletes. And a lot of these people are not exercising that come to see sports medicine physicians. And I think personally, it should be a little, um, a little bit part in the job description or role for sports medicine physicians to kind of suggest it or find avenues to help patients start exercising a little bit more. Right. Exactly. So we've discussed a lot in this uh, episode um, from anything from orthobiologics to medical education to a little bit about injury prevention and return to play. Is there anything you think we're missing that relates to preventive medicine when it comes to sports medicine and your role? Um, I don't think so. I think we we covered the most, you know, the uh, most of it, whether, you know, we talked about preventive medicine on the athlete side and then preventive medicine on kind of your regular day to day patient side that, you know, on the athlete injury prevention for your regular everyday patient, it's more of going into the diet and exercise and things like that and how they can um, try to prevent injury and prevent some of these other metabolic conditions. So um, I think we touched it, you know, you could certainly go into the weeds on any of these topics, you know, whether especially we could do a whole podcast series on orthobiologics and the evidence (laughs) supporting them and kind of the misconceptions out there and and why the, some of the data out there is not, you know, you have to really get into the data and pick it apart for high level and low level data and things like that. So, you know, I think we did a good job of, of kind of hitting the high points and talking about some of these things, but, but there's so, um, so much more that, that we could, could go into on, on each of the topics that we discussed. And so I just, uh, I encourage people that have further interest in, in some of these to, to do some, um, to do some research or seek out people that that may be authorities in that field to try to learn more and also go follow uh, dr bowers and all the social medias because he does post about um all these medical education things and i've learned a decent amount from some of his instagram posts and just um 
yeah, about sports medicine because that's what I want to go into. But with that being said, um, this podcast is about more of like those broader level things that are kind of generally applicable. Um, sometimes we dive into the weeds a little bit more, but typically we try to stay out of them just because you can go on and on. And then um, I feel like people that are really interested are a small amount of those listeners and everyone else just tunes out at that point. Yep. Um, you know, if I had a, um, just for people to be aware of is just, uh, be aware of, of social media, medical misinformation and diet misinformation and things like that. Just have your, have your skeptical hat on when, when you read some of these things, because if it sounds too good, too good to be true, it probably is. I think, you know, with all of this stuff, it's probably more middle of the road and not, not as sexy as most people want to make it. Like one diet is, is best for you. The carnivore diet is best for mm -hmm. you. No, you know, it, it's, it's definitely not like that. So just be aware of, of misinformation that's out on, um, on social media and, and just seek out different opinions on things because I, I definitely think, especially some of the stuff with COVID vaccinations now, I, I mean, I think it can be legitimately dangerous for people. So just have, uh, be aware of, of how much misinformation is out there on, on social media about health and wellness and medicine, um, because some of it can be legitimately harmful. And I cannot emphasize that enough, but we are near the end of this episode. And this is our famous question that you're getting to experience, which is if you're at a coffee shop, Starbucks, Pete's, whatever you have near you, and uh, you're waiting for a coffee, you have two minutes until they call your name till it's ready. And someone says, someone recognizes you and says, Hey, how do I get healthy? What do you tell them? Um, you know, my answer, it's probably a bit of a, of a cliche, but it, it really is. People will talk about kind of the four pillars of health and that being diet exercise or, or nutrition and diet, exercise, sleep, and stress management is kind of being your four pillars of health. And those are the four things that people need to broadly work on in order to to get healthy. And so, so a lot some of the things we we talked about today, talking about diet and nutrition, find the the foods and things that you like to build your your nutrition regimen around. Um, find the from an exercise standpoint, find the things you like again as well. There, there are ton and, and with those also seek out the help of professionals. So like we talked about, um, personal trainers with appropriate training, registered dietitians, um, on the sleep side, there, there are tons of sleep trackers out there now that can help you that you can wake up in the morning and look at your sleep data and things that aren't very expensive either. Like I wear an, an aura ring. It tells me that I sleep like crap you know, it just, it is what it is. It tells me that, <laughs> but they're these sleep trackers and they tell you things that, that you can work on, um, with your sleep. And so you can track your sleep and, and get the appropriate amount of sleep and kind of work on that side of things. And then stress management, as far as, you know, just trying not, I think one of our biggest things, especially in the United States is stress and being workaholics. And I think working on, um, on stress management, whether, you know, whether that is, you know, going to church in your religion or meditation or things like that. Um, some of these apps on your phone, again, bringing in technology, there's the calm app that can help with stress management as well. Um, exercise in and of itself helps with stress management. So I think just focusing on those four pillars of health and not making it too, um, too difficult um, or too complex, just focusing on those four things is probably the, the quickest way and the broadest way to focus on becoming healthy. Short and comprehensive. I'm really happy that we finally got to do this after like five or six months of planning. Um, I really enjoyed the conversation. I hope you did too. Yep, definitely. Uh, I'm glad we finally got it to, uh, to work out. Um, you know, too bad Jason couldn't be here as well mm -hmm. to, uh, to chat with us, you know, again, my fault. I did, I, I wasn't thinking of it that you guys were about to start residency. And then once you did start residency, it was going to be hard to get, uh, two uh, newly minted interns in the, in, at the same time based on the crazy schedules. So, uh, my bad on that, but I'm glad we at least got to sit down and, and, and talk between the two of us. It's all right. That's how, that's how it works. That's how it works out. Um, is there anything that you want to like people to find you where have all your socials already like all over, but is where yeah. can people find you? Is there anything you want to shout out? Yeah. So, um, so as far as anyone in the, in the Southeast or, or in Georgia that, you know, it needs, needs help with whether it's seeing me or finding a physician that, that could be of great benefit to you, feel free to, um, 
to reach out to me, you can always email me. It's just robert.bowers at emory.edu. If there are any questions, if people want to, uh, to reach out, just don't, you know, don't spam email me or, <laughs> or, <laughs> or anything like that, but I'm, I'm always happy to help. So whether it's with, you know, residents and med students help with mentoring or just kind of give you advice as far as what my thoughts are on kind of the, the path and, and just help you get to the, the right place, um, for you. So feel free to reach out to me. My, my social media handles, it's very easy to contact me through that too. Um, and you know, the more I get busy and involved in different research projects, the sometimes the longer it takes me to respond, but I will, and I'm, and I'm always happy to help. And so, um, you know, biggest thing is it's, uh, you know, I do, I do my best just like, I think everyone, everyone tries to do their best, (laughs) but, um, but you know, as far as shouting people out, you know, my wife and we have our third baby that's due, uh, in less than a month. And so, um, and so just, uh, you know, them putting up with me and trying to build my career and, and things like that is, uh, um, it's a a big ask from them and, and my wife especially lets me, not only, you know, go to work and be active academically and, and with sports medicine, but she also allows me to exercise when I get home. So, you know, shout out to her for allowing me to, uh, to do that. And that's an incredible offer given all that you have going on. Once again, thank you for coming on the podcast. Um, really appreciate it. Take care. Thanks. Hey everyone, this is Raghav. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. If you want more content and to join in on the conversation, find us on YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram at PreventPod. That's P-R-E-V-E-N-T-P-O-D. Thank you for listening and we'll see you on the next one.